Hello, everybody, and thank you for joining us on this episode of the Catholic Halos podcast. I'm Veronica Ambuel, editor of the Colorado Catholic Herald newspaper, and I'm joined today by Deacon Patrick Jones, who's the founder of Catholic Halos and an award-winning author of Catholic Fiction. And our special guest today is Sheila Whalen, who is the superintendent of schools for the Diocese of Colorado Springs. So before we uh, get into our topic, uh, Deacon Patrick, would you lead us in an opening prayer? Glad to. Ave Maria, gratia plena, Dominus tecum, benedicta tu in mulieribus, et benedictus fructus ventris tui Jesus. Sancta Maria, Mater Dei, ora pro nobis peccatoribus, nunc in an ora mortis nostrae. Amen. So um, we, we are going to be discussing today the trend that seems to be growing uh, year by year towards classical education, both in el- elementary schools and in high schools. Um, and I know uh, here in our diocese, in the Diocese of Colorado Springs, um, there are several schools that are um, kind of transitioning towards uh, a more classical curriculum. And we're going to have um, Sheila talk about that. But before we do that, uh, Deacon Patrick, could you kind of give us a working definition? Just what do we mean when we say classical education? <laughs> well, as I joked with my kids uh, before coming in here to do this, I, it's it's the uh, the study of music from the '60s, '70s, and now '80s because <laughs> that's a classical decade. Uh, that seems to be the main cultural definition of classical. Anything is wow. You're re- really reaching way back if you reach back into the 1900 whatever. Uh, the answer to that definition is no. <laughs> Classical education um, is Thomistic in its approach, um, meaning de- derivative from Thomas Aquinas uh, in his thinking, uh, and pursues the good, the true, and the beautiful. And it's based on the premise that God is love and God is truth. And you can't have one without the other. Uh, and so God gives us, when, when you read the different doctors of the church, it's very clear, St. Gregory of Nyssa, um, I'm paraphrasing here, but he says that reason is the highest faculty of the soul. And St. Catherine of Siena describes the intellect in much the same way as essential for ascending to a higher understanding of God, God's revelation, and uh, the fullness of living our humanity. So a classical education um, looks back through uh, the, the history of human thought, starting uh, a, a common starting point is, uh, Greek thought, um, getting into, uh, Plato's cave and, uh, moving forward from there. Uh, I'm sure Sheila can give us a, a more academic understanding of that. Um, 
what we've done as a homeschool family, because our children looked at the Greek and said, well, why are we studying that? Uh, and I've got a good answer for that for, for a lot of folks, but we, we tended to focus more on the doctors of the church because their thinking brings in Greek thought and Roman thinking, uh, but it builds upon it. And the reason to study Greek and Roman thought is because we get to see, okay, how far can fallen humanity advance without Christ? Uh, not very far. We kind of have a superhero culture and thought <laughs> and, and you don't get very far, uh, except in fiction that way. And, uh, so you need, um, St. Augustine, St. Thomas, uh, opening up, um, the, the human thought to the theology of, wait, God is the very definition of uh, what is reasonable. And so if we're going to think reasonably with reason, uh, then we need to define that. We, we need to allow God to define that, not us to define that. Otherwise we'll sell ourselves far short and not be open to wait. We need God's grace in order to achieve what God created us to be. Um, so all of that's a fairly esoteric definition. <laughs> um, and I'll toss it to, to either of you to, uh, to dive in and, and share your own experiences. Uh, this is Sheila and looking at it from the Catholic educator perspective, um, we're really going back to what Catholic education was before we became more secular before Catholic schools adopted so many of the public school tenets of education. Um, this is the foundation of education really comes from the uh, Catholic history. You know, the, the doctors of the church who were teaching the, in the monasteries and um, the, not everybody had the opportunity to have that education. And, but those who did um, had a very classical, they were learning about the Greek and the Romans. The questions we have today are the questions we had 500 years ago. They haven't changed, but we stopped going back and looking at a historical perspective on those questions. Um, so I feel like we we act we acted as though these were new concepts instead the things we struggle with as man have been the same struggles we've had all through the history of mankind and it comes back to the role of god in our life and when you talk about what is true and what is beautiful you have to understand that god has defined those for us we um, don't have to act as though <laughs> these are new concepts. It's It's been answered. But if you don't look at the past, you don't know that those questions have already been asked and there's plenty of answers to look well, at. Well, now, wait, wait a second. The whole premise of society today is that if it's new, it's better. That's the progressive mantra. 
you don't need to look beyond five minutes ago to find the right answers, right? Correct. <laughs> Which is part of our crisis, right? Because then it's whatever, whoever comes up with an answer you like, oh, that sounds great. The, the idea of reason and logic and thought has been thrown out for, you know, who is this? who is this person we're going to elevate up to the role of um, mentor or uh, I can't think of a term, but you know, the, who's the guru. person we're going to follow today. <laughs> guru uh, is the one correct. I use. <laughs> guru, correct. That's the one. And, and so they don't have to have anything other than, you know, really a fancy, use of language to convince people to sway people but so isn't that many, what the serpent did in genesis right well and it, fancy use of language i was it in, really say <laughs> i was in um oklahoma for 14 years and it's only three percent of the population is catholic so i i was working in a catholic school and so many of the People were not Catholic in the school. And so they switched churches depending upon who that person is up front. And whatever that person is teaching is what they follow. Um, they don't have the tradition that we have within the Catholic Church of here, here's the foundation of the faith. And while there's not always consistency in the Catholic faith either, um, there are, the foundation is there. People may choose not to follow it, but. Well, the foundation is consistent because it's the, the full revelation of Christ through, uh, sacred tradition and through sacred scripture. Right. So it's, it's really getting back to, there are ultimate truths in this world. And I think it's the crisis we're in right now as a, a world be going beyond just the culture of the United States. I think the world is in crisis because we're turning our back on these truths that we know to have stood the test of time and foundation um, in Christ. Sheila, I wanted to ask you, um, I, I know that, um, so, so, this is your first year as superintendent of schools, but of course, before this, you were the principal at St. Peter and Monument. And I know you had mentioned to me at one point that you had already kind of started uh, introducing some classical education uh, concepts and um, curriculum at, at St. Peter's. Uh, I, I guess as a, as a parent, I, um, uh, you know, my, my children have attended a um, a classical charter school for quite a few years, but um, I don't often get to see it through the perspective of of a teacher or a administrator. Like, what are the what are the challenges with that? You know, for a school that does want to move more towards a classical curriculum. Well, in the Diocese of Colorado Springs had adopted, before I came in in 2012, they adopted core knowledge curriculum, which was developed in the late 80s by E.D. Hirsch. And 
um, it really is a very classical leaning curriculum going back to teaching a world history view beginning in first grade, which is um, very unusual curriculum wise, um, working on presenting fairy tales, folk tales, more classical literature. The issue with the core knowledge is that it's really a Protestant leaning curriculum. If you've read any of their textbooks, they don't present the Catholic you know, worldview in a positive light. So if what we wanted was a Which more- Which skews an awful lot of history. <laughs> Correct. Because they, they only came about 1517. So right. <laughs> we, we have the same challenge in the homeschool arena as well. <laughs> right. So this was purposefully going in and uh, re, re uh, can't think of the term. Um, kind of reorienting or. Right. Um, it kind of taking back the definition of classic education because classic education is Catholic in its foundation. And so it's going back and purposefully taking back those parts of our faith. And we, in Catholic schools, we're always integrating Catholic teachings into everything we're doing. But if the textbook that you're using is presenting <laughs> the Catholic faith in a negative light, um, and isn't showing any of the positives, right? Then we have a problem. Shouldn't be taught in a Catholic school. So um, it was really looking at it and um, taking taking control of what we were calling a classical education. If you can't, you know, in a charter school they can be classical, but if they can't include the parts that are God within that classical, is it truly a full classical education? And so to me, it was about going back to acknowledge the history of Catholic education and going back to what it was before, um, even even with the nuns, right? It, it's not even so much that it was just an education with the religious, although that was, you know, a, a huge part of the foundation of Catholic education in the United States. But as the religious left, that so many of the Catholic schools really became more like a public school. So it was coming back in saying, this is who we are. This is the foundation of Catholic education. This is where we belong. And it's um, it's a move away from a reliance on technology, um, which is growing more and more in the public schools. And so much of the public education literature will tell you that you should be including more technology in education. And yet there are plenty of studies that are highlighting that technology is um, creating a lot of um, dangerous mental health issues and 
um, getting in the way of academic success for children. Um, and, and that's being ignored. And certainly COVID has made that more <laughs> challenging because well, everybody's pushing you to go online. And I'll, I'll jump in here with a, a couple of thoughts. The first one is in relation to, you'd mentioned studying history um, and the the roots of Catholic classical education. And that had me thinking, well, okay, the very definition and understanding that society has of the Dark Ages is, well, the Dark Ages happened from the, the fall of the Roman Empire until suddenly and magically uh, the Enlightenment happened <laughs> out of these Dark Ages. No, 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 no. <laughs> the Dark Ages were relatively short compared to that. And then there was the Holy Roman Empire, um, which cultivated a uh, prosperity of agriculture and academia. Um, and really the roots of what we're talking about come uh, from there where, where the writings from the early church were gathered, collected, protected, uh, studied. And um, that's where Catholic thought really begins to um, flourish and, and blossom. Um, and there's, I know my wife and I were public school educated uh, growing up in the uh, 70s. And um, the things we discovered were wrong <laughs> about the history that we had learned. Um, cross-reference the Spanish Inquisition, cross-reference the uh, absolute absence of religion from the, the Scottish-British uh, wars, uh, the American Revolution, etc. Um, we had a lot of unlearning to do, and that was uh, before the level of indoctrination in public schools got to where it is now, which is absolutely astonishing. And and then something that you had alluded to, uh, Sheila, and I, I can't remember exactly what it was, but cultivating innocence, protecting innocence and creativity in children. Oh, it was when you uh, spoke on technology. Um, technology tramples on creativity and it tramples mm -hmm. on innocence. And those are two essential components for one, the development of the human person toward holiness and two for, uh, education, um, learning how do we think the way that God's revealed to us and shown us. Um, and God gives us these tools as weapons against the attacks that are happening today. We have, uh, it's Christianity itself is being called racist because, um, artists in the past drew, uh, Adam and Eve as white because it was white artists drawing them. Um, other artists have drawn them as other ethnicities. <laughs> and we know intellectually that they weren't white. So uh, the foundations of many of the attacks happening today are very easily refuted with a classical education and basic um, logic and reason. Yes. And I think, you know, 
I was reflecting on what is different when you walk into a classroom where there's classical education. And, you know, at those younger grades, we are becoming so dependent on presenting, visually presenting all a story or um, a video or, and all of these things can have a role, but what happens with literature when you're not reading out loud, something as simple as reading a story out loud to the children, where they are called to imagine in their their own head, create your own picture of what you're seeing. If you show a video of that exact same story, they don't ever create their own picture because a picture is being shown to them. Whoever has interpreted that has, has drawn the picture for the children. And so we take, we're taking away their creativity, their imagination by constantly filling it with visual representations of whatever we're doing. I think in science, it has a role. If you're teaching about history and you can show, you know, archaeological sites, if you can show them what it actually looks like, it has a role. But we're moving everything to video visual format. And I think it takes away the opportunity for the students to create those pictures in their minds. So, you know, they talk about you want to present po poetry and literature that's has beautiful language in it. It grows their vocabulary. It also grows their imagination. They have to, and you talk about it. But as soon as you start putting up pictures, and as soon it's entertainment then, instead of, you know, asking them to stretch their mind to, to create their picture. And our children, unfortunately, are spending more time on devices where everything it's a game format it's it's we have to entertain them with um and, you know activity and pictures and music and flashing <laughs> and game format everything has to be a game or it's not they're not going to be engaged that's what we're being told and i would argue that that is not truly what children want or need. Now, one question that I've had is there's this societal belief, uh, and I believed it uh, until at some point I realized that doesn't make any sense, that every generation inherently rebels against the previous generation and comes up with something new and better. Um, and part of the reason behind my joke of the, the classic uh, rock from the 60s, 70s, 80s <laughs> is that's what our culture has created um, so that we expect rebellion of children against their parents. And if you just apply basic thought, who would want to happen from a mystical perspective have uh, – discontinuity between generations. Um, it sure sounds like a spiritual attack by Satan to undermine humanity running towards Christ. Um, 
In your experience, Sheila, what do you see across the generations when there's classical education? Does that diminish teenage rebellion? Does that diminish uh, toddler rebellion? <laughs> kind of the same thing, <laughs> just on a different scale. Right. Yes. They say uh, 16-year-olds are two-year-olds with keys. Um, so... I, you know, I don't have enough experience to say where does it go when they hit teenage years. Um, I remember reading a social scientist who said it's only in America where we expect teenagers to rebel against parents, that that is not a norm in most other societies. Now, I've never researched it to <laughs> find out if that's true. Um but I, I do think, and, and it is, it, it's a huge struggle, um, I would say, as parents are trying to set limits for their children, and it, it wouldn't matter if this is a classical school or not, but for those parents who try to restrict, say, technology, they won't give their children a cell phone until they're a freshman in high school. But when you have a class where everybody else is getting it in fifth grade, it creates um, a real tension between the child and the parent. Um, and it, it can cause uh, real difficulties within the home. And that's, that's a parenting norm that you can even in a classical education environment, not everybody agrees on those type of parenting rules, right? Well, how do you how do you establish that across the school? <laughs> well, you know, at the school I was at, you couldn't bring your there was you couldn't bring your phone to school. You couldn't have device it free your, at the school, but but right, right then you have the peer pressure at home, and that right. still is that wedge. And we try to educate the parents on the dangers of giving them the technology, um, just the vulnerabilities that are out there. And of course, every parent thinks they have absolute control over their child's use of technology. And I can <laughs> give you many stories to demonstrate why that's a false, um, you know, a falsehood. Uh, and they think they're providing a safe environment for their children. So we try to educate the parents. But again, we're, I was at the beginning of this process at St. Peter's and Monument. So um, can't predict. We were only in our, we had completed our first year of starting to put this in. But again, we were taking the core knowledge and we were um, tweaking it so that it had a stronger Catholic presence with what we were teaching. And then purposely looking for um, content that gave a stronger Catholic perspective. So we use the Catholic textbook project, fifth through eighth grade, which um, presents history from the Catholic point of view. And it presents the um, role models from within the faith that were present during those different time periods so that they're learning about um, their faith ancestors as um, 
one somebody I once listened to talked about the saints are our our faith ancestors. We all know our own family line, um, but we need to spend time looking at the examples within the Catholic faith throughout the generations, like you referenced, Deacon Patrick. So um, it's it's trying to get a fuller picture of the experience of mankind over time. And you do have to go back to the Greeks and the Romans because they did form the foundation for so much of what happened. How do you study American history if you don't go back and study Greece and Rome? One of the amazing joys, and you may uh, echo some of this too, Veronica, for us of classical education has been the depth and breadth of family conversations um, that, that happen around meals or vacations, whenever there's family time, um, connecting current events, uh, questions that, that they ask that challenge us to say, wait, (laughs) maybe I'm not understanding what happened in the crusades, or maybe I'm not understanding the, the depth and breadth of Catholic monarchies. Um, but the, um, that then translates into, wait, I can see my, the quality of thought that my child or children have, and I can trust them with more, uh, authority. And our experience has been as that increases and they start making more, taking more ownership of their own choices. Um, they can't rebel against themselves. (laughs) That doesn't work. (laughs) It it just hurts. (laughs) And, uh, so, so our own experience and the experience of, uh, other homeschoolers that, that we're in connection with is that the rebellion isn't, uh, doesn't happen because there's the solid foundation of thought and the ability to engage with equals as equals, um, with us as parents, both directions and with between them and other, uh, homeschoolers, other well-educated people. Uh, and, and they see the fruit of that, uh, and, and they see the fruit of their own imagination. And when they experience the absence of it in others, they're bewildered and puzzled by, I don't know how to interact with them. Uh, that's going to be one of the big challenges. I don't know how we address that, but, um, as, as Veronica may get to, we're, we're getting short on time, but Veronica, did you want to mention anything along those lines of of your experience? Well, yeah, I guess, um, uh, when, as you and Sheila were speaking, um, one thing that uh, occurred to me, uh, um, you know, one of the facets of, classical education, um, at least that I've seen playing out, um, in the children, in in the school that my children attended is that there's more of a, um, emphasis on like hands-on activities and, you know, primary sources. And, um, so one of the things, um, that, or one, one of the, uh, aspects of the curriculum that has stayed pretty constant is that, um, the kids all do, uh, an immigration project where they essentially research, um, their family history, you know, and, and because, I mean, as we know, 
99.9% of us, our ancestors did not come from this continent, right? They, they, they came from other places. And so um, I thought it was a great exercise. So long story short, um, my husband's family has a much more established um, genealogy and, and historical information. And so the kids always um, presented on his family, but <laughs> j- just the fact, just the fact that um, they learned that their, you know, their great great grandfather um, got on a ship from Holland in 1847, and that his wife and two children died of cholera on the ship on the way over. You know, I just, I just love how classical education all of a sudden. Um, brings, you know, as you were speaking about history, really brings history to life and helps kids see much more where they fit, you know, kind of in the historical time frame. And um uh and so I do think that it um it, uh you know definitely the emphasis on hands-on activities um, as you were talking about Sheila, you know, and not so much relying on technology, I think that's been tremendously helpful. And um, also, again, you know, the idea of going back to primary sources, um, not just um, relying on kind of distilled uh, versions of historical events and things like that. I, I, I personally think, um, you know, especially as a mother to five boys, that it has helped to keep them more engaged in their education um, than, than, than maybe they would be otherwise. That does not saying that they always wanted to be at school, um, but certainly the ability to dress up as a Roman gladiator, you know, once a year or um, something, you know, that it was, it was, it, it, it um, I, I, I think it definitely um, uh, made them, you know, captured their attention much more than, than maybe otherwise. And so, um, you know, I've certainly appreciated that aspect of it, but, but yeah, the gosh, there's just so much more we could say. I feel like we could do a whole other show on this, but unfortunately we are out of time. So Sheila, thanks so much for being with us today. It's been a great discussion. Um, uh, so we'll go ahead and uh, Deacon Patrick, could you lead us in our closing prayer? Uh, I will. Uh, I wanted to just end with one quick thought. Uh, sometimes we've been asked uh, how, how, what would be a book list to recommend, uh, along the lines of a great book list? Um, the simplest answer to that, that I know is there's quite a few you can search for, but, uh, the doctors of the church, pick one and read it, just read it straight through. doesn't matter if you're not following it, you will eventually catch up and understand it as you keep going, um, persist. And it's amazing what you'll discover. And uh, with that, we will uh, let us pray. Ave Maria, gratia plena, Dominus tecum, benedicta tu in mulieribus, et benedictus fructus ventris tui, Jesus. Sancta Maria, Mater Dei, ora panobis peccatoribus, nunc et in ora mortis nostrae. Amen. Well, thanks everyone for joining us for this episode of the Catholic Halos podcast. We'll talk to you next time.